Um, you know, the Reformed Baptists, the Reformed Presbyterians, the Anglicans, the Ephraims. Uh, we are not a denomination. Why? Because any denomination that would agree with the distinctives of Acts 29, which we will see tonight, can become part of the network. So within Acts 29, you have Baptists and Presbyterians and Ephraims and Christian Missionary Alliance guys. And all these denominations can be connected to a network for accountability and coaching and assessment and church planting. That's why we love it. Because um, So imagine like NASCAR, right? You ever see those guys? They, they, they get an interview and there's like a thousand different patches on them. And those are all their supporters. Well, in one sense, you could think of Acts 29 as like NASCAR in that there's all these different denominations that are supporting the work of church planting. That's our mission. We are uh, trying to plant church planting churches. It's the main strategy. Okay, number one, why we are Acts 29 is because of their, in my opinion, the best assessment process for church planters that exists. Uh, when I was assessed with Acts 29, it took over a year. Uh, I was writing and answering questions and giving up all of my information, including my bank account information, you know, debt to income ratio, talking about my uh, sexuality in great detail. Uh, and you're like, why would they go there? Because they take church planning and lead pastors very serious. And in the eldership process of this church, and as you become a deacon, these things will also come up because it's very important. If you have a problem with porn, you should not be a lead pastor and you should not be um, planning a church. So they want to know, when was the last time you looked at porn? You say, well, that's off limits. Well, you don't understand the stresses and pressures of church planning and how important it is to be holy before the Lord and how susceptible you are to the devil's attacks when you're a lead guy. I heard a non-Christian rapper the other day who I would never recommend listening to, so I won't even say his name. One of his lines was, if you strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. He goes by Royce the Five Nine. Um, he's a fantastic rapper, just super foul. And that's true. And you don't think Satan knows that? So the assessment process for Acts 29 is super rigorous. My wife had to get interviewed. My wife had to fill out multiple paragraphs of information. And we had to meet with qualified Acts 29 pastors and get interrogated. That's the best way I could say it. And then we had assessment conditions after that, which we had to fulfill. They're like, yeah, you're, we think you're called to plan a church, but not yet. We want you to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And then get back to us rigorous process. And since my wife and I have gone through it several years now, it has gotten bigger and badder and more expensive for reasons that they want to see healthy churches get planted, as we do, right? Yes, absolutely. Number two, coaching. Within Acts 29, there is a plethora of wisdom in coaching. I have accessed many coaches within Acts 29, and you might look around and say, wow, your coaching wasn't very good. Guys, we are still here. I can't tell you how many mornings I've woke up and said, we're, we're, this isn't dying, we're dead, we're not going forward. I can't do this anymore. And I got some coaching, and I was like, all right, let's, let's get back up, dust ourselves off, and let's keep going. Okay? The coaching is phenomenal within Acts 29. Training, we have, in my opinion, the best, can you guys see over there? We have the best training, I think, available for the mission of God within biblical mission. 
Not manipulation mission, but biblical mission. And the training within Acts 29 is phenomenal. Uh, myself and Eddie and Vince are participating in official Acts 29 training right now, and it's so rigorous and extensive that we're, we're just crawling through it. I'm just crawling through it because it's so dense. Also, support. The support system within Acts 29 is every official Acts 29 church commits to giving 10% of each dollar that comes in to church planting. 1% goes to the head of Acts 29. Um, it's 600 and I think 50 churches now. It gets dispersed for con conferences and training and special events and crisis needs. And 1% goes to our North Atlantic region from Virginia all the way up to Maine. And then the other 8%, we get to decide what do we want to do with that eight cents that comes in on every dollar for church planning. Our money is being devoted to Uganda and a few brothers over there. Um, and Vince is actually going over along with Kristen in January. The plane tickets are reserved, they're headed over, and we await more information and footage and interviews and, right? Oh yeah. So that eight cents gets to go to get Vince over there and it gets to go to resources that he's gonna take with him and the training that he's gonna spend a month over there, training these guys and assessing and looking to build a small network in Uganda. So, this is why we personally are Acts 29, okay? For these reasons, but there's more. And so I want to very quickly run through four points of why we are Acts 29. You ready? Number one would be what Acts 29 is or what we are as a network. Number two would be what Acts 29 believes or what we believe as a network. Number three would be what we as Acts 29 wants to be known for. And then four, what will success look like for Acts 29? Are you ready? You ready to go quick? You guys with me? The turkey is still making you tired, isn't it? Acts 29 is a diverse global family of church planning churches characterized by one, theological clarity, its five distinctives, what we'll look at next, cultural engagement, meaning that we're not afraid to engage the culture, whatever culture we find ourselves in, whether we're in Uganda or we're in Pittsburgh. All cultures need Christ. And within culture, there are things that we must reject, for sure. There are things we must redeem. And there's things we can just receive, okay? And the wise missiologist, that's someone who studies the mission of God, will know, okay, we got to reject this for sure. We can receive this, and this is kind of a neutral, and I think we can redeem this. And we can show Christ culturally. So we are never, I don't, I don't hate on the Amish, they make fantastic furniture, but we're not Amish, we're not pulling out of culture and creating a subculture that protects us. Build up walls, throw up the barbed wire, make the fences higher, keep culture out because it's of the devil. Well, Genesis chapter 1, called the cultural mandate, God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. That means make culture. And so we believe that Christ is Lord of culture. And we need to be about redeeming culture and being in culture and seeing the gospel transform culture to his glory. Amen? So we like Acts 29 because they are fantastic missiologists and we are all about cultural engagement. Missional innovation means we have some of the best practitioners at work for the sake of missions. 
all over the globe, not just here in America, but all over the globe, engaging the mission of God. So that would be what we are. We are a diverse global family of church planting churches. We're church planting churches. Next, we see the five distinctives of Acts 29. So denominations have distinctives. Some of them are good. Some of them are terrible. Okay? These would be the broad distinctives of Acts 29. What does Acts 29 believe that is essential in the Bible that we have to agree with to be in the network? Number one, gospel centrality in all of life. And for sure, this should be the first one. Remember Jesus on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. He's resurrected. He's walking with two disciples who are distraught because their supposed Messiah has died and he's been buried and now they can't find the body and and Jesus is walking next to them. And he says, why are you so upset? Are you a stranger to Jerusalem? Haven't you heard of the things that have happened in these days? And how ironic of Jesus to say, what things? <laughs> what are you talking about? And he begins to open up the scriptures, starting with Genesis, all the way through to the prophets and shows himself in the scriptures. The whole of the Old Testament, starting from Genesis and ending to Revelation, is all about Jesus. And the gospel is the centerpiece of every story, every storyline. All the prophets point to the main prophet. All the priests point to our great high priest. All the kings point to the king of kings. And who would have thought that the king would become a servant and die in place of the people? We need to learn well how the gospel is the center of all of life. Here's a few texts. You know this one well. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Paul says to the Roman church, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek. Now, I want to take a broader look at salvation real quick. Because there is a point at which you're saved. Like we, we who are old school, kind of evangelical, pray this prayer for spiritual laws people. Any of those people in the, in the house? No? Yeah, you remember that. We would say, say this prayer. I mean, pray the sinner's prayer. Confess Christ and you'll be saved. Okay? What we usually mean by that is you're lost in sin. You're dead in trespasses. You're spiritually not alive. And then you can... Pray this prayer, and by the way, I don't agree with the sinner's prayer. I don't think you can find it in the Bible, and I don't think it's like witchcraft where you can just say an incantation and boom, you're magically in. My cards are on the table. Okay, But I think there is a real point in which God works in the heart of someone upon hearing the gospel. They do move from spiritual death to spiritual life, and that is a real moment in time. So there is a point in time in which you are unregenerate, which means you're not born again, which means you hate God and you're at war with him. And there is a moment in which you see your sin for what it is, appalling to God and deserving of his wrath. There's a moment in time when that happens. And then you shift from, I need a savior. I need forgiven. You feel the guilt of your sin like you've never felt it before. And it's strange to you. Something new is happening. God is awakening you. He's drawing you according to John 6, 44. 
And as you confess Christ, what has happened, I would say just previous to that, is you were made alive, which enables you to confess. You say, where are you getting this from? Well, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Then what? And this is not of your own doing. What's the this? The grace and the faith. Let me say it again. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this, grace, faith, is not of your own doing. What is it? It's a gift of God. Why? So that no one can boast. No one can boast before God to say, I chose you, she didn't, I'm better, I'm smarter, praise me because I made a good choice, and she's just dumb, she's foolish. No, God in his grace gifts you salvation so that no one can boast. That's all through the scriptures, and we're going to visit that in just a moment, but here's what I want you to see. The gospel is the power of God. No one is saved without hearing the gospel, Romans 10 tells us. How can they believe if they don't hear? And how can they hear unless someone is sent? And the idea is, you do realize, friends, let's just think about this for a minute. God has, we think, we as in the theologians who study these things, millions upon millions of messengers who are obedient to his call in a second. Who are they? What does the word messenger mean? Starts with an A. Angels. God has, they're they're seen as the stars in the sky. So some theologians think that the number of stars in the sky could be the number of angels. Well, that's billions upon billions. We don't know how many. But the word angel literally means messengers. And if you don't think God could dispatch millions of gospel messengers to tell all 8 billion people on the world right now the gospel, then what kind of God are you worshiping? But he doesn't. And every time you see an angel in the Bible, they're never, ever telling the gospel. They're always telling someone else to go and do something or go and tell someone else. Go release from prison. Now go and preach in the temple. They never come with the good saving news because God has charged men and women with that responsibility. Friends, do you think God is limited by you and I to share the gospel? He is not. However... He has chosen to use us in his great work of saving a people. Isn't that good news? He doesn't need us, but he welcomes us into the work. And the gospel is the means, or by this text, the power of God for salvation. People believe after they hear the gospel. The Holy Spirit moves through that word. But listen, so we just talked about moving from death to life, but there's a second sense of salvation, isn't there? Salvation from current and present sin. You need saved from your current and present sin. Did you know that? Your sin that you're holding on to and can't get free from and keep falling back into right now is actually causing death in your life. You realize that? Attitudes, actions, ruts, addictions, the wages of sin is death. Eternal death, yes, but there's current death happening in your life right now because of your sin. The death of relationships, the death of of mission, the death of um, joy. I mean, there's all kinds of death happening in your life because of your sin. You realize that. Yet, the comfortable place is to just leave it alone 
and not fight it. Well, this verse is about salvation from current and present sin. Let's look at it. Paul, speaking to the Philippians, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. Now, the therefore points to chapter 2, 1 through 11. Does anyone know what chapter 2, 1 through 11 is? It's one of the most beautiful descriptions of Christ's humiliation in the whole Bible. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself like a servant, was obedient to death, even death on a cross. It, it is 10 verses, 11 verses of fantastic humility gospel. So, as a result of the gospel, therefore, this is always the case, friends. The gospel results in something. As you have always obeyed, look, gospel comes first for 10 verses, therefore, obedience. Let's always see that pattern in the scripture because it's really there. The gospel comes first, and as a result of the gospel, there's obedience. It's never we obey and then we're saved. It's always we're saved and then we obey. But the obedience in this text is talking about salvation from current or present sin. As you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Listen to this. Work out your own salvation. Wait a minute. I thought Ephesians 2, 8, 9 just said, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith and not about works. That's true. So this verse cannot be talking about spiritual death to spiritual life, but rather having spiritual life, being alive in Christ, and seeing your current sin killed, Romans 8.13. By the Spirit we put to death the misdeeds of the body. So we work out our salvation from what? Current and present sin. With fear and trembling. Why? Because sin is the very thing that Jesus had to come and die for. We play with sin like we play with deadly venomous snakes. Like, no one messes with vipers like they're kitties. No, you run from vipers. No one one smacks copperheads around for joy. Why? Because you get bit and you're in big trouble. No one's taking deadly, poisonous, brown recluses or black widows and going, oh, you know, just smacking it around. Why? Because they're very dangerous. And most people, when they see them, they run in fear and trembling, don't they? And that's the idea. You treat sin with fear and trembling because the wages of it are death. Yet, for us, we've lived with it so long and it's so comfortably lodged in our lives through thought patterns, through actions, and through addictions, and through mindsets that we don't want to touch it because it's comfortable and it's lodged in there and it's going to be painful to have it dislodged. But this verse is saying, work it out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And this is the glorious part of this verse. If Paul just stopped there, I would be discouraged. But because of verse 13, I am not. For it is God who works in you. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That sounds like Ephesians 2.10 that Donna just read, doesn't it? Predestined for good works, prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Look at this. It's God who is working in us to what? To will. That means you're, you're choosing. Like, we, we always think the will as being free. Well, this verse is saying the will is not free. It's God working in your will, your choosing mechanism, to do what? To work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
God is working on your will so that you want to fight and kill your sin. That's good news. He's saying it's not all on you. The nudging, the moving, the prodding, sometimes the poking and stabbing of the Holy Spirit is for you to not be apathetic towards your sin. And you should be glad about that. That he doesn't just, because here's the thing, it's killing you and he doesn't want you to die a slow death because of sin. He wants you to have joy and freedom and life. And he knows, God knows, that that comes by the killing of sin. Look, not only is it to will, the choosing, but it's to work. God is the one at work when you work. This is a miracle. This is what John Piper calls you acting out the miracle of sanctification. It's a miracle because it's God at work, but it's you living it out, acting it out, and you exercising energy and moving, yet not without God working and moving. Isn't that good news, friends? That the salvation that is offered to us is not without God's moving on us in the first And the salvation from current, present sin is not without God moving on us in the second. And what about the third? The third sense of forgiveness and salvation is saved finally from the presence of sin. And friends, this is called glorification. And we will get there. We will be saved from the presence of sin eventually. As we hold on, as we don't give up, as we don't abandon Christ. And it will be by God working in us to will the perseverance and to work for the killing of sin in persevering. Okay, number two, the sovereignty of God in saving sinners. Okay, You cannot be in the Acts 29 network as a lead pastor, not saying you can't be in an Acts 29 church, unless you believe in God's sovereignty in saving sinners. Sinners. This means that God is the agent at work in salvation, mainly not us. We respond to God. He doesn't respond to us. God gives the gift of faith and grace. We don't reach out in faith and then get the gift of grace. Well, where would you get that from? This is probably one of the best texts. There is hundreds and hundreds of texts through the Bible. So this, Paul speaking to Romans, this is our favorite verse for most Christians, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So for those who love God, who are they? They're the ones who are called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? Well, Ephesians chapter 1 says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world for the praise of his glorious grace. Remember we sang that earlier? Well, that's his purpose, that his grace would be praised, that we would see his grace and recognize it for what it is, and it's glorious, and we would praise him for it. But the promise for us is we love God. Why? Because he first loved us. That's right. Jesus said, To his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And the idea is because God calls us, that call there is the effectual call of God. Some would call it irresistible grace. It's the idea that when God summons you, because he is the most powerful being in the universe, you come as a result of that summons. If a judge, if you have a warrant out for your arrest, and a judge calls you to court, you are now 
in trouble because the authority in your locality is now coming for you. You can run, you can hide, but eventually when you get caught, you will come before that judge because you've been summoned. Now, that, if that's the power of an earthly judge, imagine the power of the capital J judge summoning you, calling you. Now, we could look at texts all day, but we don't have time. The called according to his purpose. Now, for those whom he foreknew. Now, here's what we need to see. The good, the ultimate good of 828 is in 829. What is it? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Being conformed to the image of Jesus is the good of Romans 8.28 in context. And that should, if that doesn't sound glorious to you, you just don't understand how glorious Jesus is and how much being like him would free you and thrill you and fill you with joy. You would get up every day full of light and hope if you were more like Jesus. You would not be lamer and less popular and more dreary. Now, yeah, I think you'd be able to feel more of the pain of others because you'd empathize more and you'd have more compassion. But that doesn't mean that you'd also see God in his glory so much more brightly. But what about the, the foreknowing there? Well, for those whom he foreknew, that's the first step, he predestines. So there's a people who he foreknows that he predestines. Now, for those of you who've studied this, you know this, this is nothing new, but the knowing there is not knowing about, and the knowing there is not knowing what you would choose beforehand if you were offered a choice. That's nowhere in the Bible. You read that into that text. It's not there. However, here's what is there about knowing all through the Bible. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she what? Conceived and had a son. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and had a son. John 3.17, this is eternal life, that they know you and Jesus Christ, the one whom you've sent. You see, all through the scriptures, Mary did not know Joseph until after Jesus was born. There's a knowing that is a deep, intimate, profound relationship. And so what this would mean in keeping with the rest of Scripture is that God chose to have a loving relationship with you before you existed. Ephesians 1, predestined before the foundation of the world to the praise of His glorious grace. See, before the world was even formed, God knew you. And that, that blows our minds up. Because how can I exist before I exist? Well, in the mind of God, you existed and he knew you and he chose you and, and chose to transform you in time and space as a result of his knowing and then choosing. Look, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined. What was the predestining? That means predetermined destiny. What is, what is the result of that predetermined destiny? It's that you would be conformed to the image of his son. And then what's the result of that? In order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. He would be the preeminent one. He would be the, the one that, who has supreme glory, and we would be in his image. Jesus, the first, the best, the one who deserves praise, honor, and glory. And we would be like him. Remember, Jesus came in our image so that we might become like him in his image. Right? God creates man in his own image. 
Genesis 1.27, but then Jesus comes in our image that we might then be conformed to his image. 30, and those whom he predestined, so, so see there's a chain here. There's a one following the other. Those whom he predestined, he called. That is also the same called as here. It's the effectual summoning. Those whom he predestined, he calls. This happens in time and space after you've heard the gospel. One of the best stories I've ever heard was about a man named Luke Short. And he heard a Puritan preacher by the name of John Flavel preaching in England when he was just a young one. This man, friends, was converted later in life across the ocean in America after remembering the sermon he heard John Flavel preach when he was just a little one. Guess how old he was when he remembered the sermon and got converted? He was in his 80s. 60 plus years had passed, and this man remembered a sermon he heard, and he was converted and saved called in time and space across the ocean after he had heard the gospel. You can look up the story, just Google it. John Flavel, Luke Short, and read the details. Called. And those whom he called, he justified. Justified is a theological term that means not guilty, but not because you're not guilty, but because you're declared not guilty. It's the not guiltiness of Jesus gifted to you. So you, in your guilt, Jesus says, not guilty. God the Father says, not guilty. Why? Because another's not guiltiness has been gifted to you. So in Christ, you are not guilty. You are justified. It's just as if I'd never sinned. And it's just as if I'd always obeyed. It's called double imputation for you theological heads. To impute means to credit in place of another. Christ's righteousness credited to you so that you are not guilty. Your guilt credited to Jesus on the cross, and he gets treated as if he lived your foul life. Double imputation. Christ takes our sin, we get his righteousness. Justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Glorified means you make it all the way to perfection, friends. This is good news. So there is a chain that happens from eternity past to eternity future. And we're kind of passive in this whole thing. Do you notice that? It's he, 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 and you're kind of missing. You're just the object of grace. Do you see that? But we do have to ask the question, like, where does faith come in? Because we're saved by grace through faith. So where is it? Where is it? Well, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of son of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. We're always justified by grace through faith. So calling happens, and then faith is assumed in between calling and justification because faith comes as a result of receiving grace, which is faith. You can think of faith as just receiving. Receiving. And so as a result of being called, you believe. It would be like the the first cry of a newborn baby. Believe. You believe as a result of being born, again, as a result of being called. And as you believe, you are justified. 
And the beautiful thing is those whom are justified, no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. No one can snatch you out of Jesus' hand. Jesus knows his sheep, and no one is greater than Jesus and the Father. If God is for us, who can be against us? Friends, I've heard this described as the grip of God. And when God has his grip on you, not even you can pry yourself loose. And that should make you rejoice. Not fear or not stomp your feet and pout. You should say, oh my God. If you think you have strong faith, you have not been smashed by trials and tribulations yet. Because sometimes all we can say is, oh God, hold on to me because I'm letting go. And in those moments, you hold on to this text and you say, I will make it because he has his grip on me. Anyone been there? A couple of you are shaking your heads like, yeah, I feel that. The Thessalonians, Paul speaking to the Thessalonians, he says, we give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in in our prayers. That was last week. Remembering you before God, our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch this, verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How do we know that God chooses people? How do we know? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, not just preached, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. In other words, there was faith and belief because God came by the power of the Holy Spirit and called. That's how we know you're chosen. You believe. So for us, what is our responsibility? We believe. We really do believe. But the belief is a result of the power of the Holy Spirit. You see that, right? Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, so the gospel was preached, but as it came, it came in power, the power of who? The Holy Spirit. And with full conviction that this was for you and that you needed saved and that your sins were the reason of Jesus dying. Power, the Holy Spirit, full conviction. That's how we know you're chosen. So again, friends, we never know who is chosen beforehand. And the best theologians will tell you this. We should assume the election of every single person we come in contact with. We should never try to guess who God has chosen and who God hasn't. Rather, we should just assume that everyone we know and everyone we come in contact with is chosen. And we will treat them as such. Give them the gospel as God gives you opportunity. Okay. The work of the Holy Spirit for life and ministry. This text is foundational for me. Jesus speaking to the disciples, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus telling the disciples who are to receive power, you remember in Acts 1, wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit and then you will receive power. Remember, the gospel came in power and the Holy Spirit in conviction. (coughs) The idea is without Jesus, by his spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit is often called the spirit of Christ, the spirit of Jesus. Jesus leaves after doing his earthly work and then he continues his work by coming through the power of His Spirit. 
So we, without the Holy Spirit, friends, we are ineffective, we are dull, we are powerless, and we can do nothing, and that's not a bad thing. It's humbling, but you know what? God gives grace to the humble, and he opposes the proud. So what we never, ever want to do is suppose that we are something great and that we are the source of power, that we have it together. No, we say we got nothing unless the Holy Spirit is helping us, aiding us, and moving through our efforts. And sometimes God will allow you to work in your own efforts and let it fall flat on its face so that you might be humbled because he actually values that. You guys remember Paul in 2 Corinthians. He he is beaten and battered. He's buffeted by a demon. And most theologians think that that's a false teacher that has come into the Corinthian church and he's leading the whole church astray and it's going crazy. And he says, he asked for the thorn to be removed three times and God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so he says, to humble me, God allowed this to continue. He said, I'm not going to remove this trial tribulation. I'm going to let this church get all wrecked up and destroyed so that you'll be humble, Paul. It's worth it to me. Now, that's crazy if you don't have good theology. That God would allow a church to go crazy and get wrecked and be plagued with false teaching to keep Paul humble? Yeah. Read it in context. God values the humility of his people, friends. Why? Because Jesus Christ was the most humble being who ever walked on this planet. And praise God, he is conforming us to his image. So we want to be people who are not dependent on our own gifts, talents, and abilities, but rather dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. You do realize that when Jesus was on earth, he didn't even start his ministry until what? Anyone remember? Okay, after he got baptized, Jesus comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, remains on him, and then immediately in Luke, we find out he's led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. And then he's led by the Spirit to do this, and then he's filled with the Holy Spirit and power, and he does this. But until he's 30 and baptized, we don't even hear much about him. He's in the temple learning, but when the Holy Spirit came... So friends, here's what we can safely assume that Jesus did nothing out of his own power except for forgive sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So that you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. I say to you, take up your mat and walk. So Jesus did exercise his godness in that he forgave sins, but whatever miracles and whatever reading of minds and whatever casting out of demons, he did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't even start ministry until the Holy Spirit came upon him. Now, why is that encouraging for you? Because you have the same Holy Spirit. Friends, if we think that Jesus, because he was the God-man, which he was, was able to fight sin and work for kingdom expansion and make disciples because he was God, friends, we don't have a really good pneumatology, which means theology of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is on you for the same work that Jesus did. Am I saying you're going to raise the dead? Probably not. Am I saying you're going to talk to cripples and have them get up and tell the blind to see and tell the deaf to hear? Probably not. But you will do the work that Jesus did, doing good to the poor, relieving the broken, making disciples. 
Okay. The equality of male and female and the principle of male servant leadership. This is all through the Bible, but here's how we want to say it. We believe that men and women are created equal in the image of God, and not one is more superior than the other. So if you have the idea that men are more superior to women, you have a bad reading of Genesis 127. Male and female, he created them in his image. They're both equal. And listen, friends, a lot of the women that I've met are far more gifted, far more emotionally intelligent, and far more kind of astute than a lot of the dudes I meet. Like way more capable. And, and some of the dudes are smiling right now going, yeah, that's true. Like more in touch with God and what's going on in the world. And guys are like, huh? Now I'm a guy, so I'm dissing myself right now too, right? But here's the amazing thing, brothers. God has called men to lead sacrificially. Doesn't mean we're better or we're more qualified or we're more capable even. It just means God designed men to lead. So in Ephesians, this is for wives and, and, and husbands. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Now, I left out the previous verse, 21, which says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So in wives submitting to husbands, there's a mutual submission of one another. Like, I don't disregard all my wife's thoughts and ideas and her desires and her dreams. I don't say, no, this is all about me. You need to read Ephesians 5.22. No. Submit to one another out of love for Christ. But husbands will be called to account. Guys, you listening? Especially husbands. If you want to get married and if you're married, you will be called to account for your wife. And wives, you'll be called to account for how you submitted to your husband. So it's not that is the man the leader, it's is he a good one or is he a bad one? Let's read it. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Not all husbands, not all men in general. Your own husbands. Brothers, your wife should not submit to me as a husband, ever. Nor will my wife ever submit to you, even though I love you. They submit to us as the husband. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is where we get the idea of male servant sacrificial leadership. How did Jesus love the church? He died for her. The church, as a response to Jesus dying for her, submits to him. As a result of the gospel, we obey. And in the same way, husbands, brothers, we need to be dying for our wives by living for them, by dying to ourselves, by dying to our laziness, by dying to our will. I don't want to do that, or I want to do this. Die to her, and guess what? Submission's not going to be a problem. And know that if you're walking in sacrificial, loving leadership, it's going to be so much easier for her to submit to you. Brothers, please, we need to grow in this. We need the Holy Spirit. Bad. Wives, for you to submit to your husband is a scary endeavor, is it not? 
That means, wives, you need the power of the Holy Spirit for this. But brothers, we can make it a lot easier on our wives, just like Jesus made it a lot easier on us as the church. We're the wife of Christ, the church, by dying for us. We can die for our wives, and that will enable them and help them in their submitting. So the best illustration I've heard about uh, of this is, is this way. Uh, imagine the, the car is your lives, and the husband is driving the car. But the wife is holding the hand of the hand that's on the steering wheel. So the man's driving. He has ultimate responsibility for where the life goes and where the family is going, and he will give an account to God for the destination. But the wife is holding the hand of the husband who's holding the wheel. Make sense? And what that wife should never do is be like, you're a terrible driver, and just you know grab the wheel and bust a right. Because that's how you crash. You're getting too close to the side of the road, and you take the wheel. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? We have an honest wife in the house. Because you want to grab the wheel. Because it looks like you're going to crash. Okay, so you get it. Brothers, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Wives, you need the power of the Holy Spirit. And is there, listen, so imagine this text. Let's lay this text on a non-Christian, doesn't believe the Bible has any authority couple. Oh my. And is there any wonder why marriages are a wreck outside of the church and inside of the church? Because we kick against God's design, and it's because of sin. Why do we see death of marriages? Well, because the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Let's work out our own salvation here with fear and trembling. Amen? Yeah. It's worth fighting for because it's going to bring you life and joy and a flourishing, fruitful marriage. Very quickly, this is why I left you in Crete. So Paul writing to Titus, he leaves him in Crete. It's an island in the Mediterranean. So that you might put what remained in order. What's not in order, Paul? Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So there's churches in different towns, house churches. And what's not in order is there's not leaderships. Leaderships. There's not leadership in the churches. And so Titus is left in Crete to establish leaders of the churches. Now I want you to see who does he call for leadership. Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, notice all the he's and his is now. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, an insubordination for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, we don't have time to go into 1 Timothy 2 and 3, but 1 Timothy 2 and 3, 11 and on into 3, 7, shows very clearly that God has called men to lead the local church as the highest office in the local church. Women are, I hate to say it this way, barred from being a pastor. But listen, friends, 
outside of being a pastor and doing the expected overseeing and teaching as a pastor, listen, the sky's the limit. We want in this church to see women flourish and teach and be trained and be equipped and make disciples who make disciples, just like the brothers. So, listen, if it's not... If it's not um, belittling for God to say, men, you should be the pastors in the local church and not women, then you shouldn't feel less. You shouldn't feel in, um, le- less superior. Okay? It's not that men are even more gifted or better. It's not that. It's that God designed that men would lead in the home and in the church. And when we walk in God's design, we see flourishing and fruitfulness. Now, we don't have time to flush that out. Uh, You can come talk to me. I would gladly, gladly flush that out for you. We just do not have time. Um, We don't have time. (laughs) Five, the local church as God's primary mission strategy. Now, this is the only text, and we're moving on, and we're almost done. Acts 11.26, this is the church at Antioch. It's the first Gentile church. We looked at this previously in the series. Barnabas goes to see what's happening in Antioch. He sees that there's this outpouring of gospel fruit, and he goes and he grabs Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus. And for a whole year, they, Paul and Barnabas, met with the church, notice this, church, and taught a great many people. That's making disciples. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. The mission of the church, friends, is to make disciples who make disciples. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I've commanded, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That is the commission. If anyone wants to say the mission of God is this, and if it's not discipleship, they're wrong. Now, within discipleship, there's all kind of implications. Trust me. But the disciples are called Christians, and notice they're connected to a local church, the church at Antioch. Now, why do we bring this up? Well, look, the local church as God's primary mission strategy. As you watch the church at Antioch in Acts 13, they become a missionary church, and they send out missionaries, and what those missionaries do is not just make converts, but what? They plant local churches. They establish elders. They create members of local churches. Friends, God's mission strategy is never to have individual, individualistic, islands of their own Christians, ever. God's main mission strategy is to have churches Who are churches? They're people connected to one another, underqualified leaders with elders, deacons, and members. Friends, the church is the mission of God. You do realize that. Discipleship is never isolated from the church. It's the primary means of mission. And as the mission moves forward, more churches are planted or more people are added to churches. So the idea that you can be a Christian all on your own without being connected to any local church is not biblical. 
It's very American. Very American. But it's not biblical. Because all the commands to one another in the Bible, which there are so many, it would be hard to list, you can't live them out without people to one another. And how do you submit to your leaders if you don't have any leaders? And how can deacons serve if there's no people in the church for them to serve? And we can go on and on and on and make arguments. But the idea is the church is the mission of God. And church planting is God's strategy to reach a lost world and to make disciples who make disciples. The local church as God's primary mission strategy. These are the five distinctives of Acts 29. They're very broad and that's purposeful. Because you can have a lot of variation in there. So we don't take a stance on all Acts 29 churches have to believe that the gifts have continued, all the miraculous gifts. There's cessationists within Acts 29, and there's continuous within Acts 29, and there's charismatics within Acts 29 who are biblical. And we don't take positions like that because we believe that the work of the Holy Spirit is for life and ministry, and that's going to look different under different eldership teams. Okay, and on and on we could go. It's very broad, but it's very purposeful. All right, lastly, last two points, and they're just these two last slides, and we're done. What we want to be known for. So Acts 29 wants to be known for planting churches that plant churches, pursuing holiness and humility. So we don't want to be people who are, eh, sin's okay. And we don't want to be arrogant Christians who have massive theological heads. Because in my experience, and, and I know in your experience, those who have good theological heads on their shoulders tend to be the most arrogant among us. And we at Acts 29 say, nay. And I don't like it either. I, I was that guy. And I want to go back and Bruce Lee myself when I was like a 10-year-old Christian, debating everyone who would talk to me. Like they'd be trying to walk away from me as I'm spitting scripture at them like bullets. Ha! Ignorant. No, I was the ignorant one. Okay? We at Acts 29 want to be known for holiness, seeking the killing of sin, Romans 8.13, and humility. Let, let's have the f- most robust and uh, fantastic theology, rich, but let's be humble about it. Okay? And let's be a racially diverse and global community. God's church is not one ethnicity, it's not one culture, it's not one socioeconomic status, and it's not the elite of the world who have master's degrees and doctorates. Though I'm not hating on master's degrees or doctorates. I think they're beautiful. And go for it if you can. But what I'm saying is God calls the most ignorant among us, not in the rude sense, but in the unknowing sense. And he calls very educated and elite. And God is building a church that will look like every tongue, every tribe, every nation gathered under one head, Jesus. And I want our church to look like that. And thankfully it does. It's getting there. Like, are you guys excited for more ethnicities to join our church? Like, are we just going to be a black and white church? Or are we going to be a church that says, Asian Americans, please. Mexican Americans, please. Latin Americans, please. Canadian Americans, wouldn't that be awesome? Bring the maple syrup. Yes, yeah, some Jewish Americans, yeah, absolutely. And on and on and on with the ethnicities. Man, could we be that church? 
Because that's what the church in heaven is going to look like. And listen, that will come at great cost. And awkward conversations. And sometimes heated ones. But if we will choose to stick with it and not run from one another, it can happen. It can happen. And Acts 29 is devoted to it. I want us to be devoted to it too. And we want to pray for conversions through evangelism. God works through prayer. And I want us to be a praying church. Like praying throughout the day. Praying at the beginning of the day. Praying short two-line prayers with your spouse, with your kids, while you're talking to coworkers, while someone asks you a question, while you're at Starbucks ordering. Like pray, 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 and ask God for grace and opportunity. Let's be a praying church. And lastly... We're going to look at what success would look like for Acts 29. Recruit local church planners dedicated to leading church planning churches. So we are looking for this. That's what we're doing in Uganda. We're actually going and we're looking to recruit dedicated church planting churches. That's the work we're doing. We want to see people raised up from this very church who would be church planting men. Number two, we want to see uh, assessments happen of men, and if they're married, their wives, based on the core competencies to lead church planting churches. We did the core competencies in, I think, the third message. You could go back and listen to them. We want to develop men who are planting or leading church planting churches through coaching, training, and support. So thankfully this is happening with me, but we want to then be givers of this same coaching, training, and support. We don't want to all just be on the receiving end. Eternal City Church, they got hands wide open, but they're never giving. Friends, that's going to look like us getting equipped, getting trained, and having open hands. And saying it's not just all about us, but rather inviting others in and being willing to do the coaching, training, and support. So this is why we are Acts 29, and we are done with this series, and maybe more to come in the future, but for now we're going to let the YX29 series rest. And I would encourage you, if you haven't heard all the messages, go back and listen to them. They're all online. And why do we do this? We do this for the sake of Christ. We do this for the praise of his glorious grace. We do this to see sinners saved. We do this to see disciples made. We do this to see more churches planted. Friends, will you commit yourself to the mission of God which is the making of disciples? Will you commit to getting equipped to make disciples? Will you get better gospel fluent, to use the title of Jeff Vanderstelt's book? Like, you can speak English pretty well. Will you get gospel fluent as well as your English fluent? Learn how it applies to every circumstance, situation. What's the question? Jesus and the gospel is the answer. So we're going to celebrate that gospel tonight, and the salvation that God offers in Christ is available to anyone who will believe. So tonight, maybe you're not a believer, but you know you need to have your sins forgiven. Maybe you need to confess Jesus as Lord and confess that you've sinned against him and that his death on the cross was for you, for your sins, that he might be treated like he lived your foul life. And then you, by God the Father, will get treated as if you lived his. It's beautiful. It's the gospel.